invite you to turn to the fifth chapter of Amos. We're um, in a series uh, looking at the minor prophets. We're beginning with Amos because Amos is probably the first of the writing prophets. And we're looking at this passage as a kind of the heart of the center section of the book of Amos. The first section being uh, chapter 1, 1 through verse verse 8 of chapter 3, the lion roaring, which we looked at last week. And just remember the setting here is after Saul and David and Solomon and the division of the kingdom, Amos is a prophet addressing the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, and addressing, addressing their sin doing it in a very forthright manner. But even as he does that, he is reminding them of the ever-gracious God. So Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They who hate him who reproves in the gate And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous and who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Let's pray together. Lord, it's hard for us to see in such a strong word. It's hard for us to see you standing in the midst of this hard and strong word with your arms outstretched calling for your people to turn from their foolishness and their idolatries that they might have life and might be restored to you but there you stand ever pleading with your people that they seek you 
Lord, would you give us grace to seek you this morning and would you grant us your spirit that we might seek you, that we might hear your voice, that we might respond to you, that we might heed your call and come to you, the ever-gracious God. Grant us understanding this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This uh, past week, one of our members said to me in reflecting on last week's sermon, said, I needed a grace-filled sermon last week. Now, I understand what he's saying, and believe me, it's as hard to preach a sermon about the wrath of God as it is for people to hear a sermon about the wrath of God. It's not how you win friends and influence people, right? The reality of God's wrath, the reasons for God's wrath, and the response to God's wrath, it's not any easier to preach it than it is to hear it. The first section of Amos' prophecy that begins in, really in verse 2 of chapter 1 references a lion. That's chapter 2 of verse 1. The Lord roars from Zion. He roars. And that is then followed by eight instances of this phrase, I will not turn back my wrath. And then the section concludes with these seven cause-effect questions which underscore and emphasize the fact that Amos is not making something up here, but this is something that he has heard from God. This is a word that has come from God. And because it has come from God, he has to speak it. Shall the prophets not speak? Shall they not say what they've heard from the Lord Almighty? No, Amos is saying they have to do it. And then the section concludes with reference again to the roar of the Lord, but now depicted as a ravenous roaring lion. The lion has roared, and who will not hear? And who will not fear? And the whole point of that section is to arouse Israel. It's to wake Israel up. It's to get their attention. And what God is doing in that first section is reminding Israel that he is a holy and righteous God. And because he is a holy and righteous God, he cares about what is right. And he cares about what is righteous. And if he cares about what is right, and if he cares about what is righteous, then he cares every bit as much about what is wrong and not right and, in fact, evil. And here's the way I would summarize this. This is the way I would summarize it. It's sort of pedestrian, I suppose, but this is how I'd summarize it. I'd summarize it by saying God is communicating through Amos there is someone at home in the universe. And the someone who is at home in the universe cares about what is right. He cares about what is right. And, because he is the God of heaven and earth, he has both the power and the wisdom to do something about it. Remember what we said last week? Everybody cares about something. And everybody who cares about something believes that the thing that he or she cares about is a right thing to care about and frankly believes that everybody else ought to care about it as well. 
That's the way life works. That's how we're wired. That's how we're put together. We're put together that way because we're created in the image of God, a God who is righteous and who believes in certain things, who has commitments to certain things. We're created in the image of a God like that. Now, the difference between us and God is that he's very clear and we're very confused. And that's why you have Republicans and Democrats. Right? That's why you have people who can't agree about things. It's not it's, God is clear about what is right, but we're not. And that's why you have all of these bitter fights and animosities and everything else. The point is everybody cares about something, and what they care about they believe is the right thing to care about, and they believe that everybody else ought to care about it as well. Well, there's one person in the universe who knows what is right, and he cares about what is right, and he has power and wisdom to do something about it. And my point last week, however poorly communicated was, that is a good thing, and it's something in which to rejoice and about which to rejoice. That's good news. It really is. I mean, it's not good news in that sort of narrow sense that the gospel is good news, you know, the cross. But for our culture and in our day and time, where things are increasingly anarchistic, it is good to know that there's someone at home in the universe who knows what is right, cares about what is right, and has power to do something about it. That's a good thing. That's not something to be afraid of. It's something to rejoice in. Now, obviously, it is something to be afraid of if you're on the wrong side of that whole deal. But the fact is the thing that I'm trying to communicate to you. And so God's wrath then, because he is righteous, because he is good, God's wrath then is the external outward manifestation of his anger in the presence of evil. It's his opposition to evil. Now think about it for a minute. I've got to tease some of this stuff out before we move on to the middle section, so forgive me. But think about this for a second. A God who is unmoved in the presence of evil is not a God worth worshiping. You get that? So anger is God's outward expression. Wrath is God's outward expression of his anger toward what is evil. And a God who is unmoved in the presence of real evil, who doesn't care about evil, is not a God I want to worship. And then secondly, a God who is either unwilling, which is sort of the first point, or incapable of doing something about evil is not a God I want to worship either. He's not a God who can help me. But what we're saying is the God of the Bible, the one true God, is both powerful and good. And because he is powerful and good, he is aroused, he roars in the presence of true, objective, moral evil, and he does something about it, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Now, as we come to this second section, the focus gets narrowed, and this is, I tell you, the more I, I mean, this is, it's heavy, okay? 
This is heavy-duty stuff. God narrows his focus as he speaks through Amos and narrows his focus on Israel, the northern kingdom. Does God care about unrighteousness wherever he finds it? Yes, he does. Is God opposed to all of the nations in their unrighteousness? Is his anger aroused? Yes, it is. He opposes the evil in Edom, in Philistia, in Phoenicia, in Moab, in Ammon, in all of the nations that surround the nation Israel. But you see, he narrows his focus down to Israel. He is concerned with Israel in this section of this prophecy. And there are three strands to this focus, and they're sort of woven together. And you can read through this whole section of Amos' prophecy this week, and you'll see these strands there, three strands that are woven together like a strong cord in this center section that begins at 3.9 and concludes at 6.14. And the three strands are these, the complaint of God, the chastisement of God, and the call of God. The complaint of God, the chastisement of God, and the call of God. First, the complaint of God. The complaint is heard throughout this section. And again, the complaint is a focus upon Israel. Listen to some of the things that make up this complaint. Chapter 3, verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. Houses, houses, houses. What is God upset with? What is God concerned about? Houses seem to have a central place in this book. Houses. Houses that are indicative of self-indulgence and opulence. Winter houses. Summer houses. This, this gets close to home, doesn't it? Beachside houses. Mountain houses. Houses. Read through this. Everywhere are houses. And God has issues with houses. Now, houses in and of themselves aren't that big a deal. But as you continue, as you make your way through this thing, you begin to see that there's more to it than just houses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear this word, and this is tough. This is tough. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. You see, you got houses first. Summer houses, winter houses, mountain houses, beachside houses. But then the focus becomes a little more clear. What are these cows that are in view here in this passage? Who are these cows that he is referring to? Well, they're the cows of Bashan. Well, what are the cows of Bashan? Well, it's like the cows of Kansas and Nebraska. Okay? They're the well-fed cows. Bashan was known for its beef. Known for its beautiful cows. Its well-fed cows. 
okay? Externally attractive and beautiful. Pampered, nurtured, catered to. Do you know what veal is? Veal is what is baby beef, right? Tender, succulent, can cut it with a fork type beef. You know how you get tender, succulent, can cut it with a fork type beef? You put the poor cow in a cage and don't let it move. Why? Because what happens when it moves? It builds muscle. And the muscle becomes tough and hard to cut. So the cows have to stay in their little pen or in their, and these are calves, by the way, or in their cages, and they have everything brought to them. They're corn-fed. You know, everything is done from the water is brought to them, their nourishment is brought to them. They're pampered. They're not like the cows and the goats and the chickens that I see in Tanzania. That's all free-range stuff, okay? Stuff that gets released into pasture lands and into barnyards or outside someone's house, and they run around either pecking if they're a chicken trying to find something to eat or roaming if they're cattle, if they're goats trying to find something to eat, and they become tough and strong. And when you sit down to a meal in Tanzania, bring your teeth. Because you're going to chew, and it's going to be work. But not baby beef, not veal that's catered to, that's pampered, that has everything brought to it. Who are the cows of Bashan? They are the women of Samaria who are pampered, who are self-indulgent. Bring me my bonbons. Husband, bring me to drink so that I may indulge myself. They're the women of Samaria. But it's just a metaphor, you see. It's just a picture for what is going on in the whole of the northern kingdom. That there's a preoccupation with wealth and with opulence and self-indulgence and being pampered and being catered to and at whose expense? at the expense of the poor and the needy. And rather than the blessings of God showered upon the northern tribes by God himself, the God who is the author of light, the author of darkness, the God who created Orion and the Pleiades, who upholds all things by the word of his power, the source of all blessing, the source of all life, instead of recognizing that, instead of being a conduit of that blessing to the poor and needy, they became a cul-de-sac of that blessing and never let it out. Never let it out. So that the poor and needy might be cared for. In fact... It was at the expense of their brothers and sisters in Israel that they became fat like baby beef, pampered, catered to in every respect. It's just a horrible distortion of God's design for his people. 
It's a horrible distortion of God's design for his people. God's design for his people is that they be one and interdependent. You know, you get beautiful snapshots of this, imperfect to be sure, but you get beautiful snapshots of this in Acts 2 and Acts 4 at the end of each of those chapters where you see the church of Jesus Christ, the new community of Jesus. Remember I said last week, everything everything comes down to Jesus. Everything gets turned back to Jesus. When Jesus comes, he reverses everything. He reverses the curse. He changes the natural order of things and restores what we call the natural order of things. He begins to restore it to its intended pristine condition of harmony and beauty and loveliness. And you see that. You see it at Pentecost where people from all of the nations of the world speak all of their languages, but all of their languages are understood. It's the reversal of Babel. And then at the end of two and the end of four, you see the effect of the rule and reign of Jesus exerted by his spirit in the midst of the church overcoming the kinds of socioeconomic and ethnic racial divisions that so characterize life in this world. The new people of God doesn't make those distinctions. And now they are one people, and it's mikasa sukasa. My house is your house. What is mine is yours. Not because some state mandates or dictates to me that what belongs to me belongs to you, but because you are my brother, you are my sister in Christ. And where God has blessed me, those blessings are to flow through me like conduits to meet and care for the needs of my brothers and sisters. You see a reversal of the tragedy that is described in Amos 3 and 4 and through this whole section. And so the echo of God's attempt to correct Israel sounds throughout this whole section. The complaint continues as God repeatedly, repeatedly points out the pride of Jacob, chapter 6, verse 8. The resistance of Israel, chapter 5, verse 10. The resistance to correction. The resistance to those who speak the truth. 5.21, he says, I hate your feasts. I hate your solemn assemblies. Even their religion was an object of God's hatred because it was hypocritical. And so this this complaint that God has with Israel, that she is devoid of justice, she is devoid of righteousness, that she is devoid of the kind of compassion and the kind of unity and the kind of heartfelt and heart-expressed devotion to God that God longs to see in his people. All of it is gone. It's not there. And so God continues to complain against Israel. And he does it because Israel was to be different. But as it is, Israel is so much like the surrounding nations that she's indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. She doesn't look any different from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, Phoenicia. And it breaks God's heart that that is the case. 
And so God brings this complaint. And then woven into this section is this second thing. He also brings chastisement. He brings discipline to correct his people. He speaks to them. He complains against them, but he doesn't leave it at that. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Let me just go through this rather quickly, but beginning at verse 6 of chapter 4, you see God reminding Israel paradoxically, ironically, of the things that he has done in past decades, generations, even centuries, to seek to get Israel's attention. This period of time appears, at least for some of the people in Israel, to be a time of opulence, houses, self-indulgence, all of the rest. But chapter 4, verse 6 and following indicates that there have been those times when God has done things like this. Verse 6 of chapter 4, He has created periods of hunger, a lack of food, cleanness of teeth. Where does that come from? Does it come from weather.com? Does it come because the guys out in Colorado didn't predict things properly? No, we've read this at the end of chapter 5. Where do these things come from? They come from the God of hosts who made the Pleiades and Orion. They come from the God of heaven and earth who makes desolation and destruction flash forth so that destruction comes upon the fortresses. These things come from the God of heaven and earth. And in the case of Israel, they come to Israel to chastise Israel. Cleanness of teeth, verse 6. Drought, verse 7. Drought in one city, rain in another city, unpredictable weather, resulting in poor crops in some places, bad harvests in other places, but good crops and good harvests in other places so that there's jealousy and animosity between people. And tensions arise. And then verse 9, diseases that come that destroy the crops, wreaking havoc on what is planted and what attempts to grow. Verse 10, plagues, natural kinds of things that cause deep disruptions and they result, it looks like, in violence even in verse 10. And death among people. And then verse 11 of chapter 4. Devastating, natural destruction. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, floods. Why? All designed as chastisements. All designed to get the attention of God's people so that they turn away from the things that are idols and they turn back to the one true God who is the source of life. That's what God is about. He's pleading with them. Listen to the recurring refrain in each of these verses. Verse 6, yet you did not return to me. Verse 8, yet you did not return to me. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, yet you did not return to me. Verse 11, you did not return to me. Why does God do all of this? Because he wants his people to return to him. The fountain of living water, the source of life and blessedness. 
Okay. Hit the pause button for just a second. Let me ask you to tease this out with me. What does Amos have to do with us? Okay, this is a long time ago. Okay, almost 3,000 years ago. What does Amos have to do with us? What is all of this trying to get Israel's attention, natural disasters, drought, floods, hurricanes, all the rest of that stuff? I want to be very, very, very careful here. Somebody, I know somebody is going to go away from this and they're going to misunderstand what I'm trying to do in applying what was going on to Amos to us as the people of God, okay? Look, you're good folks, all right? I love you. I even like you. Okay? But let's tease this out. What's the application of this here? Well, remember, first of all, that it is the people of God who are in view. As I said, God has scrutinized the other nations. And he does not like the evil that he finds in the other nations, but he has narrowed his focus. He has narrowed his focus down to his nation, to his people. It is his people to whom he is speaking, pleading with his people, both in the words that he speaks through Amos and the ways in which he chastises his people, that they abandon their idols, that they turn away from their idols and return back to him, that they cease to be like the dog who returns to his vomit. Proverbs 26.11. It's a picture of idolatry and the foolishness of idolatry. He's seeking to persuade his people, get his people's attention. He wants his nation first to hear his voice. Other peoples, other nations, to be sure, but his people first. Okay, now be careful. So think for a moment about floods in Iowa. Think for a moment about hurricanes along the Gulf Coast. Or think for a moment even about terrorists hijacking airplanes and crashing them into buildings. Now this isn't all that needs to be said about these things, but this does need to be said. What is God doing in the midst of these things? Might it not be the case that in the midst of these things, God is seeking to get the attention of his people so that his people would look at these things and ask not first what's wrong with them, but first what is God trying to say to us? The great, I, I have to tell you this, maybe I've said it before, forgive me if I'm repeating it. But one of the great sadnesses to me in what followed the great tragedy of September 11 is that major religious leaders looked at that catastrophe and their first response was, this happened because of you. Rather than humbling themselves before Almighty God and asking the question, 
what might this have to do with us? The people of God. The nation in the midst of the nation. The United States of America is not the nation of God. You understand me? The church of Jesus Christ in the midst of the United States of America is the nation of God. And the first nation that God would speak to, it seems, is his nation. Peter seems to have this in mind, this very thing. In 1 Peter 4.17, he says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? He certainly has in view those who do not obey the gospel, but he has of first importance the household of God. Again, Many things to be said about these things, but it seems to me that one of the things that has to be said, one of the questions that has to be asked is this. What might God be saying to his people in the midst of these things? And so God complains against Israel and he seeks to chastise his people to drive them away from the bankruptcies and idolatries that cannot give them life. And that leads then to this third thing, the call of God. And the call of God is a summons to repent, to turn away from death and to embrace God who is life. Seek me. Seek me. Seek the good. Three times. In Amos chapter 5, there is the call to turn away from one thing and to turn to another thing. To turn away from idolatry and to turn back to the living God who is life itself and in whom alone is to be found life. Now, let me just tell you, I hope to entice you to come this evening, not to turn you away, but let me just tell you that this is the direction I want our praying this evening to take. I want us to take seriously this word from Amos, and so I invite you to come this evening to pray. And to pray first that we might be given ears to hear what God might be saying to us in the midst of floods, prospect of hurricanes, rising fuel prices, rising food prices, this, that, terror, whatever it might be. All of the things that trouble you when you go to sleep at night. All of the stuff that bugs you during the day when you go to the gas pump. What is God saying to his church in the midst of a world, a culture that in so many ways seems to be unraveling? It isn't. Don't worry. It isn't. Because the king is on the throne and he's doing everything he needs and wants to do to accomplish his purposes in the world. But from this perspective, it feels that way. And so what might God be saying to
to us. Let me invite you to come this evening as together we plead with God that God might help us to hear His voice in the midst of all of these things. The ever-gracious God who calls out to His people, cries to His people, and summons His people always to come back to Him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your grace and mercy. Thank You that You've made us Your people. Thank You that You'll never abandon Your people. Thank You, in fact, because of Your grace and mercy grounded in Your eternal love for Your people. You do chastise. You do correct. You do seek to get our attention. You do seek to draw us away from the dog's vomit, from the bankruptcy of idolatry, that we might return to the fresh waters of the fountain of life, You Yourself. Grant us grace to hear Your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we sing. Um, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. It's a great hymn to end with, reminding ourselves of our great Savior Jesus, number 164. Thank you.